On June 23rd, 2018, a junior soccer team, the Wild Boars, had a birthday to celebrate. Fear of Fat, what a name, was turning 17. His nickname was Knight. The boys decided, along with their coach, we are going to do something elaborate to celebrate. Now, this team isn't from around here. They're from northern Thailand. And, and right in their neck of the woods, there was this elaborate cave system called Tham Luang Nang Nong, a six-mile-long underground cave system that was in the mountain range called Doi Nang Nong in northern Thailand, right south of the border with Myanmar. And if you're an adolescent, a teenage boy, can you imagine a better adventure than going spelunking, exploring these caves, which was a popular thing to do for the locals? So they get all this food, they go into the cave system, they get two and a half miles in, and then it happened. The water level started to rise. And they realized they weren't going to be able to make it out. They had to swim for their life to this ledge, and they were stuck. Twelve teenage boys and their assistant coach. Mom and dad picked up the phone, started to call coach, call coach, call coach. They couldn't get a hold of him, and, and they went to the cave. They went to the opening. They found abandoned bicycles and gear, and they feared the worst. So for the next two weeks, over 10,000 people helped in the effort to save these boys. Ten days later, July 2nd, a diver, a professional diver, a Thai Navy SEAL, after a five-hour diving expedition, he makes his way and somehow stumbles across the boys, finds all of them and their coach alive and in great spirits hanging out in the cave. Now, Finding the boys and their coach, that was problem one. How do you get these boys and their coach underwater out of this cave system? What had happened, even though it hadn't rained the day that the boys went into the cave, the mountain system, mountain range acts kind of like a sponge and the water level settled and it rose and it, it, they were stuck. So what do you do? Well, I mean, they, they gathered some of the smartest people from all around the world trying to figure out what they do. They, they had all of these ideas. They thought, why don't we go to the top of the mountain and we'll drill this shaft down into limestone and then we can get them out that way. They tried to drill a hundred different shafts. Never worked. They thought, well, maybe we'll teach the boys basic diving skills. Yeah, the guys that found them were professional Navy SEALs. You can't teach a teenage boy in a cave how to be a Navy SEAL. There's no way that would work. They thought, well, it's not even monsoon season yet, but once monsoon season is done, which will be months down the road, the water level is going to drop, and then we can get the boys out of the cave. The problem was the oxygen level in the cave was diminishing, right? There, there was no airflow, so they were using up all the oxygen, and a couple weeks, not months, a couple weeks down the road, there's no way they'd survive, so then they thought, why don't we just build an oxygen line all the way through two and a half miles into the cave system? But that didn't work. So they needed a better plan. They devised the most elaborate rescue scheme I, I've ever heard of. Here's what they decided to do. To get experienced divers, like Navy SEAL type experienced divers, send them in, find the boys in the cave, and then come back one-on-one. -on -one. Take one of those teenage boys, strap him to the diver's chest, give him an oxygen mask, and scuba dive them out of the cave system. But they realized that these boys were, they were going to get nervous. They were going to get anxious. They probably were going to have panic attacks. 
So they couldn't be conscious. So they brought in an anesthesiologist who also dove back to the cave and they realized they were going to knock the boys out with some ketamine. And they did. But ketamine only lasts for 45 minutes. It was a three-hour diving trip. So they would have to resurface to the top of the water, re-administer the ketamine, and then keep going. Twelve boys in their coach, July 10th, every single one of them made it out of the cave alive. It, it was one of the most elaborate rescue attempts in the history of the world. Incredible story. As the whole world watched and cheering them on. What would it be like to be one of those boys? Can you imagine? Imagine hanging out in the cave when that water level's rising and you realize, I'm going to die. I'm not making it out of your life. Or how would you feel after 10 days of no human contact, thinking, I've been forgotten about. They can't find us. All hope is lost. How would you feel when the head of that first diver popped out out of the water and you realized they'd found you? How would you feel when you woke up from the ketamine? You're outside the cave and you realize you had a second chance at life. Grateful? I hope that's an understatement, right? If we're honest, this isn't the greatest rescue attempt in the history of the world, is it? The greatest rescue attempt occurred at the cross when God sent his son, fully God and fully man, who came to earth, took on our form and our flesh, who died in our place, who took our weight of sin, suffering an immeasurable death so that we could have life, that anyone who believes in Jesus could be saved. What Jesus did on the cross, he didn't just save 13 people. He offered salvation and rescue to the entire world. And he didn't just give 13 people a second chance at life. He gave us chance, the hope of eternal life, of life after death. It is the greatest story of rescue in the world. So how do we respond? Well, I'm convinced one of the best ways that we can respond is with praise. Praise needs to be the language of our conversation with God. That if we don't know how to talk to God in praise then it's going to be like trying to have a conversation with somebody that doesn't speak our language. It doesn't go very well. Praise is the language of our communication with God. We've got to know how to praise. And Isaiah 25 is where we're going to be tonight. Isaiah gives us a great glimpse of what it looks like to praise the Lord for his rescue. But I want to give you our big idea to start tonight. I'm going to lay all my cards out on the table. God's our rescuer. Respond with praise. You can write that down, and then you can turn to Isaiah 25. One of the things I love about Isaiah is that there are so many different types of genres, even in this one book. Last week, we looked at this love song turned parable turned courtroom drama, right? Today, it's almost like we left Isaiah and we went to the book of Psalms. That's what this is. This is a praise psalm that Isaiah writes. It's a song of worship, of praise to God. And I just want to read the whole thing. I'm reading out of the ESV. You can follow along with me in your Bible or on your phone, Isaiah 25, starting in verse 1. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. 
I'll praise your name. You've done wonderful things, plants formed of old, faithful and sure. For you've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you've been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. Like heat in a dry place, you subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all people, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord your God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord's spoken." It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. We're going to pause there. Look back at verse one. You see Isaiah starts, oh Lord, you are my God, not a God, not even the God, my God, personal God, the God who's near to the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds the God who promises to give strength to those who wait on him. God is not absent. He's not aloof. Even in the beginning, Isaiah begins with a reminder of the personal nature of God. And as he continues, he gives us the big idea of the psalm. He says, God, I will exalt you. God, I will praise you. I will worship you because he's done marvelous things. That word marvelous could be translated miraculous. Isaiah was a good Jewish man. He knew Jewish history. He knew all of the things that God had done for his people. I mean, look back at the Old Testament. Think of what God's done. He, he parted the Red Sea and he stopped the Jordan River. He tore down the walls of Jericho, all the miracles of Elijah and Elisha and the plagues in Egypt and driving the people from the land. Isaiah knew that time and time again, God showed up for his people. And he wants to take a moment to remember the miraculous things that God has done for him and God has done for his people. But did you notice how verse one finished? Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. Do you catch that subtle nod to God's sovereignty? Isaiah is saying that God didn't discover history as it went along. That even before time began, he made a a plan to rescue his people. God made a plan to bring them out of Egypt. God made a plan to stop the Jordan River and to tear down the walls of Jericho. God didn't respond to the history books. God wrote the history books before there were history books. This is a reminder of God's sovereignty, his control of the future. He's sovereign over everything. And it says, you've made the city a heap, verse two, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city built no more. Remember what happened when the people came out of Egypt, they come into the promised land and the Israelites, what kind of military prowess did they have? Nothing. They were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. Do you think that Pharaoh is going to give his slaves military lessons? No, of course not, because they'd overthrow the Egyptians. They had no military prowess. They had no training. There was no military boot camp while they were in Egypt. They had no technology. They marched out of the promised land without even the provisions to provide for themselves. If God didn't show up with food and water, they would have died. But even more than that, if God wouldn't have driven the nations out for them, if God wouldn't have fought for them, They would have been dead on arrival. They would have had no hope. They were forced to depend on God. And when they did, God showed up. He was the one that made the cities a ruin. He was the one that drove the nations out before them. 
And then verse 3, the strong peoples will glorify you. The cities of ruthless nations will fear you. When God intervenes in the pages of history, even the most evil, the ruthless rulers are forced to worship God. Don't we see that throughout the book of Daniel? What happened when Daniel was thrown in the lion's den and God miraculously rescues him? King Cyrus, not a Christian, a pagan king, he praises God. How about Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they get thrown in the fiery furnace and Jesus rescues them? What does he do? He praises God. Not a good guy, a prideful guy at the core. But when God intervenes in the page of history, even the most ruthless kings are forced to ascribe glory to him. And it says, verse four, you've been a stronghold to the poor. The breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. I love that picture. Think of a thunderstorm, a driving thunderstorm. What happens when that rain pounds against a a strong wall? Nothing. It, It gives the wall a bath right? That's what he's saying. The breadth of the ruthless is nothing because God is on the side of the poor. We saw that last week in our text tonight, that God is, has this bias even toward the poor. He has a deep concern and a care for the marginalized and those who are oppressed. We even see that here in our text. But as Isaiah begins his praise psalm, what does he do? He looks to the past He looks at how God has delivered him and delivered his people. What miracles has God done for me? What miracles has God done for my people? How has God delivered us in the past? How have I seen God intervene in my life in a miraculous way throughout the pages of history? Isaiah begins with a trip down memory lane and remembers all of the things that God's done. But in verse six, the tense changes. He goes from past tense to future tense. Let me read verses six through eight again. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that's cast over all peoples, the veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Before we try to unpack what this verse means for Christians today on this side of the cross, we've got to understand what this meant for Isaiah's audience, and we can apply it to ourselves. First question is obvious. Verse 6 starts on this mountain. What question do we ask? What mountain? So if we're going to do biblical interpretation, if we're talking about hermeneutics, what's our first rule of hermeneutics? Context. Context, context, context. So if we want to find out what this mountain is, what do we do? Well, look at the context. So I'm not going to give it to you. Um, we're going to have a little race to see who can find out what mountain this is first. So grab your Bible, look at the context, see if you can find what mountain Isaiah is talking about. You're all used to me just giving you the answer. That's not fair. You've got to do some work for once. Find it yet? Isaiah 24, verse 23. Look at that. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount what? Mount Zion. Nice job. You found it. Impressed. 
Okay, this is a total can of worms, but we have to open it. When you see the word Zion in scripture, it can mean a lot of different things. Any guess on how many times the word Zion is used in Isaiah? 47 times. Nice guess. 47 times. So sometimes we'll see it just as a standalone. Sometimes we'll see him say daughters of Zion or Mount Zion. When we just see Zion by itself, it's often a synonym of Israel or the Jewish people or or the land. But when we add Mount to the front of Zion, the definition is a little bit more nuanced. It sometimes means a location, Jerusalem. But the meaning for the Old Testament authors, it's deeper than just a place. It's it's the city of the king. It, it's a holy hill. It's a, it's a picture of God's presence. It's a picture of God's salvation. It's the place, don't miss this, of God's rescue. That's Mount Zion. Remember that. And then it says, he'll make for all peoples. Did you catch that? That stand out to you? Because it should have. He doesn't say, I'll make for the Jewish people. He says, I will make for all peoples. If Mount Zion is the place where God's presence resides, a picture of his salvation, he's inviting all people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, to know him, not just in a casual way, but in a personal way. He invites them to Jerusalem for a feast, a feast of rich food, of food filled with marrow, fatty food. For you and I, we can have fatty food anytime. We just go to McDonald's. But that wasn't the case for, for the Jewish people. Having fat in your food was a delicacy. This is the best kind of food. And then it says they reserved well-aged wine, well-refined. In other words, this was the good stuff, not the cheap stuff. Isaiah's psalm turns into an eschatological prophecy looking toward the future of promises that haven't yet been fulfilled. A day when the God of angel armies will invite people from every tribe and tongue and nation to know himself. He's prophesying a day when people will have an invite, all people will have an invite to become part of the family of God. And then verse eight, this is so cool. It says he'll swallow up death forever. To understand this, phrase, we actually have to be an expert in Canaanite mythology. Any experts in Canaanite mythology out there? Yeah, I didn't think so. Isaac? No? Okay. Noah, come on up. I saw your hand in the air. I'd be happy if you'd come and explain this for us. So, no. Okay, thanks. Canaanite mythology. Here's a little bit of background. Canaan was the name of the land surrounding Israel. The Canaanites were the generic name for the people who lived in the land. And in their mythology... This is really cool. Death was pictured as this evil enemy, this hungry enemy that would eat and swallow people. But what does this text say? Isaiah 25 verse 8. Who's going to swallow up death? God's going to swallow up death. Isaiah is playing on the word picture of the Canaanite mythology saying, He's bigger, he's better, he's God over all, and God's going to swallow up death forever. Death is not going to have the final word. This would have had some significant meaning for Isaiah's audience. It's really cool. So think about what this means for Isaiah's, Isaiah's family, his audience. There was a day coming in the future when God would offer salvation for all people, when death would be swallowed up forever, when he would wipe away the tear from all faces. 
Now, for you and I, we're reading this text probably about 2,700 years after it was written. We're reading this text from a little different position in redemptive history. What happened between Isaiah and us? Jesus, the cross, the incarnation, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's a pretty big deal. So we have a different perspective looking back at this text than Isaiah had looking forward to the Messiah. And I want to walk through verses 6 through 8 again, but this time I want to do it through the lens of a couple passages in the New Testament. We might discover some cool things. The first thing I want to think about is the reference to all people. Reminds me of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's male and no, there is no male and female. You are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to his promise. You see what he's saying? That in the Old Testament system, the old covenant, the path to having a right relationship with God was through the old covenant, was through the law. But through Christ, everything changed. Paul, even in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he calls the old covenant, the law, the ministry of death. He calls Jesus the ministry of life. Now, as you and I look back at the cross, there's no need for anyone to convert to Judaism or to follow the Old Testament law to have a right relationship with God. All of that is, has passed away. We have the opportunity to have a relationship with God through faith in Christ, through what Christ accomplished on the cross, cross, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians 3. That's what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 25, a day coming when people from every tribe and tongue and nation would believe in Christ for their salvation. All peoples, it's Galatians 3. But think about a feast with rich food and well-aged wine. That reminds me of something Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus said to them, and truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Starting to see some connections? It's a hard text, isn't it? What does it mean to eat of Jesus' body and his drink of his blood? It's not literal. It's a hard saying. But Jesus is communicating two things a commitment and a closeness. We've got to commit to Jesus. We've got to be all in with Jesus. But to eat of his flesh, to drink of his blood communicates that our spiritual life, our everything comes from Jesus. That's what he's saying. But he invites us to a feast in John 6 of himself. Now, if you know the New Testament, it's not the only reference to flesh and blood, is it? You know where I'm going. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writes this, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. 
in remembrance of me. You've heard that verse every single time we do communion here at Highland. I love this passage as it brings Isaiah full circle. Flesh and blood, a a feast. It's what the early church called a love feast. It's what you and I call communion. Communion, it's a commemoration of the cross. It's an act of remembrance. It's remembering the gospel together, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. I'm not saying that when we take communion, we're physically partaking of the body and the blood of Christ. No, it's deeper than that. We're remembering what Christ has done on the cross. There's a spiritual significance to communion, that we eat of the flesh, we drink of the blood of Christ by believing in Jesus for eternal life. For us, the feast in Isaiah 25 is not communion. For us, the feast in Isaiah 5 is what communion commemorates, the gospel the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ. The feast in Isaiah 25 is Jesus. But it gets cooler. Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the place of God's rescue, isn't it? But where is Mount Zion? Jerusalem. If it had a location, it was in Jerusalem. You know what happened in Jerusalem? Jesus died in Jerusalem. Calvary's in Jerusalem. The mountain of God's salvation where he invites people to have a feast and partake in the, it's the cross. The feast is Jesus. Mount Mount Zion is Calvary. Jesus went to the cross for us so that we could have life. And then he says on this mountain, he will swallow up the veil. You notice that word? Kind of a weird word. The only time we use that now is when we're at a wedding. Paul uses the same word in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He says this, verse 16. But when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He's talking about the Jewish people that when they'd even read the law, they would still have this veil over their eyes. They they couldn't understand, they couldn't see it. But when someone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's something that's only possible through the Holy Spirit working in our hearts, removing the spiritual blindness and giving us the ability to see. But you see what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 25, on the mountain, on Calvary, the place where Jesus died, the veil was removed. It's only through the cross that we can have spiritual sight. No one understood this better than John Newton, who wrote the most famous hymn you've ever sang. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. What's the next line? Was blind, but now I see. We're all born in a state of spiritual blindness, just like John Newton, a former slave trader. But each of us must have a point in our life where where God removes the blinders and allows us to see our sin. But more than just seeing our sin, seeing the cross. The veil is removed through Jesus And then in verse 8, he'll swallow up death forever. We don't even have to guess what this means for us because Paul actually quotes this directly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You know 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the resurrection chapter. It's the chapter that we read every resurrection Sunday. But starting in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, when the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, here's Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. 
Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Starting to see the connection? All of 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. It's talking about how Jesus had to rise. It's the linchpin. It's the key of our faith. But then we get to the end of chapter 15. It's because of the resurrection of Christ. It's because death has been swallowed up forever that you and I can look ahead to the day when we'll be resurrected like Jesus, when we'll get new bodies like Jesus, when we will live again and never die because death has been swallowed up forever. It started at the cross and we're still waiting for the final fulfillment. But then my favorite phrase, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Did you see that? Sound familiar? Where, where else do we see that phrase? Revelation. Revelation 21, verse 4. Revelation 7, 17. John uses it not once, but twice. I was thinking about this phrase this week, trying to wrap my mind around what it means. Because when we get to heaven, is God literally going to wipe away the tears from our eyes? I don't know. I thought there wasn't crying in heaven. So there has to be something deeper. It's actually something that I think has started happening already. Think of it this way. We have a two and a half year old at home, which means life can be emotional sometimes. It can be hard. There can be a lot of tears. Not for me, for Matthias. <laughs> but let's say Matthias falls and gets hurt and he's starting to get emotional. I have a couple choices as a dad, don't I? Ah, tough it out. You're fine. Ever heard that before? But I could also pick him up. I'd hold him really close and I could wipe away the tear from his eye. They're two very different things, aren't they? It, it communicates an empathy. I think that's probably the best word. As a dad to say, you're going to be okay to enter into the pain, to provide comfort and, and peace. That phrase, to wipe away tears, it, it communicates empathy, but it also communicates something else. The best word is intimacy, closeness. If I started crying and any number of you came up to me and tried to wipe the tear off my face, how would I respond? I don't know, but I'd be really creeped out, right? <laughs> There are probably three people on this planet that I would give permission to do that. That's probably it. And I hope that you would say the same thing. For someone to wipe tears off of our face, it's a close thing. It's a personal thing, isn't it? For the passage to say that God wipes away the tears from our eyes, there's an empathy, there's a closeness. It's been a heavy couple weeks here for our church family. Andrew and Megan's losses hit hard. There have been a lot of tears. But that's not the only thing that you've been mourning and grieving over. I feel like in the last couple of weeks, I've gone through double or triple the Kleenexes in my office than I normally do. Not, not with me, necessarily. With, with you, actually. I'm afraid that sometimes when one of you walks into my office and I push the Kleenex box across the table, I can see you. You're thinking, I should apologize because he never has anyone cry in my office, in his office. And I want to say, it's okay, you're the third person today. It's fine, just use the Kleenex box. We all know that grief, don't we? 
It's, it's that ache. We, we almost don't even have the words to describe it, right? And some of you walked in the door grieving tonight. Some of you are going to be grieving in a week or a month or six months, and you don't even know it yet. But if you're grieving, if, if your heart aches tonight, I don't want you to miss this. God knows your pain. He feels your pain. And he wants to meet you in your pain. He's not going to abandon you. He's not going to leave you alone. He's your heavenly father. You know what he wants to do? He wants to reach down, pick you up, hold you in really close and wipe away those tears from your eyes. But it's going to be really hard for you to do that, for him to do that, if you're pushing him away. You've got to let him. You've got to let him in. And let him provide the comfort that only he can provide. When we face grief, we can do one of two things. We can run to God or we can run away from him. Allow the heaviness to push you toward him and not away from him. I love Isaiah 25 because I can't read it and not see Jesus. The gospel is everywhere. The mountain, of, which I think is Calvary and a feast, which is Jesus himself and swallowing up death on this mountain and removing the spiritual veil so that we can see God wiping away tears from our eyes. Like Jesus is everywhere in Isaiah chapter 25. But even 2,700 years later, you realize that all of these promises still haven't been fulfilled. Has death been swallowed up forever? Sort of. I mean, Jesus died, he rose again, but we still deal with death way too often. Has he wiped away every tear from our eye? No, he hasn't. We're still waiting for those things to come in the future. Look at verse 9. But it will be said on that day, which is the day that we're all waiting for, Behold, this is our God, and we've waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Ugh, this is one of these themes in Isaiah that just keeps coming up, and I don't like it, but that's just me being transparent. It's that word, wait. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. I don't like to wait. I am not a patient person. But we don't have a choice. We have one option. If we know Christ, we have to wait. We're waiting for our salvation. There's no shortcut. There's no easy way. There's, there's no way that we can speed up the process. We have to wait. So what do we do? Nothing? Well, that's not what Isaiah did. While Isaiah was waiting, he wrote Isaiah 25. He wrote a praise psalm. He worshiped while he waited. And you know, if Isaiah can do that, then I think you and I can do the same thing. I have a challenge for us. I don't normally provide work, but tonight I'm going to. I'd like each of us to spend time this next week writing our own praise psalm. 
And Isaiah gives us a picture of what that looks like. It's our next point, is write a praise psalm. And if we just follow the outline of Isaiah chapter 25, we get a really clear picture of how to do that, of what that looks like. We just have to answer three questions. And here's the first one. How has God delivered me in the past? How has God delivered me in the past? That's the first question Isaiah answers, but your answer is going to be different than Isaiah. God didn't part the Red Sea for you. He didn't deliver you from the lion's den. He didn't speak to you at the burning bush. But if you think about it, if you know Christ, then God's done some incredible things for you. Maybe there's this, maybe there's this sin struggle that three, five years ago that you thought, I'm never going to be free from this. And you walked in the door tonight being free from that sin. Not that you're not tempted anymore, but, but it's not clinging on to you anymore. Praise the Lord for that. Maybe he's delivered you from a broken relationship. Maybe he's answered this huge prayer request that you're praying for months or years. Maybe he saved somebody in your life and you've been asking him to do that forever. Maybe he worked through a a painful work situation. I don't know, but God's delivered you. You just might need to take some time to think about it. But the greatest way that God's delivered you is through the cross. That's the second, is how has God delivered me through the cross? That's the middle section of Isaiah's Psalm, isn't it? It's six through eight. He looks ahead to Calvary. He looks ahead to Jesus who came to, bore, to bear our sin. If you need help with this section, it's right here. Go to Romans 3, go to Romans 5, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, go to some of the other passages that we cross-reference, go to Ephesians 2, go to Colossians 1. The gospel, the good news of what Christ has done is all through scripture. Use the Bible to help you write this. We never graduate from remembering the gospel. And there's a chance tonight that some of you can't even write this section because he hasn't saved you yet. One of the clearest gospel calls, as you might call it in the Bible, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world, that means your heavenly Father loves you, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Each one of us have to come to a spot in our life where we say, I believe in Jesus. He is my Lord and Savior. Forgive me. I'm going to follow you. Have you done that yet? It's the most important decision you can make. Don't leave tonight without knowing that you know Jesus. And if tonight's that night for you, then you're going to have one killer praise psalm. Look at number three. How will God deliver me in the future? This should focus on the areas of our life, the areas of Christianity, the areas of our faith that God has promised, but he hasn't yet fulfilled. The second coming, the resurrection, the new heaven and new earth, all of the beauty and the glory of eternity. There's a lot of things that you and I are waiting for. But because God's promised them, God never defaults in his promise. Those are as good as accomplished. We look at the past, we look at the cross, we look at the future, and we write our own praise psalm. Think about those 12 boys and their coach. I left out a sobering detail. Their rescue came at a cost. Two divers lost their life. One of them lost his life before the boys were even rescued. He was going through the caves. He lost consciousness. They don't know what happened, and they couldn't resuscitate him. He passed. 
and then another passed away a year or two later from an infection that he got from the water. The rescue came at a cost. And if you know Christ, so did yours. So the least that we can do, the least we can do, is respond to our rescue with praise. Let's pray. Father, this book of Isaiah, wow. So much for us to praise you for. That while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that Christ died for us. That you've offered salvation to all people. You've offered us, offered, invited us to a feast to know you. The greatest gift we could imagine, the greatest rescue that we could imagine. But that's a gift that I know I often take for granted, that maybe we forget about, that we don't talk about, that we don't tell others about, that we just go on with life like it's just not a big deal. Forgive us. May we be people that are really good at praising you for how you've rescued us. That the language of our conversation with you is praise because you've rescued us and you've given us the greatest gift imaginable, yourself. So as we take some time tonight to talk in our small groups, Father, we ask for depth. We know it's easy sometimes to put on a fake face and to give the good Christian answer because that's what we do. But Father, help us to push through that wall tonight to be real and allow this to be a time where we deepen not just our relationship with you, but our community with one another. Thanks for an opportunity to gather tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.